Now, brothers and sisters, I will invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, where this morning we will be looking at verses 1 through 16. So Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. And now that we're about a month into the study of this book, and we've reached more or less the halfway point in it, I... Hope I've successfully convinced you that this is a book that is principally, first and foremost, about the church. Or to be more precise, about God's work in making the church and in empowering the church by His Spirit to participate with Him in His mission to the world, in His redemptive work to the world. And if there's one clear lesson we can pull from the text so far, it's that the church is central to the plan of God. She is the apple of his eye, as we've seen, the expression of his love. She is the bride through which he will bring new life into the world. The church, then, is not just the result of God's work in saving individuals. I'll say that again. The church is not just the result of God's work of saving individuals. Yet all too often, this is the default view in American evangelicalism, that the church only exists really as sort of a byproduct of God's grace in saving individual sinners. And we, so we think of the, God's more important work as just saving individuals, but we don't realize then that the, the, the church is central to the plan. And so because this is so prevalent within a Christian culture that we live in today, I think even we in the Reformed world, for which this kind of thinking is not native, but is sort of different from historic Reformed theology, we can still tend to think of the church in this way, and thus as a sort of added extra to our Christian lives, as though being a member of a church and participating in the life of the church is sort of an added bonus on top of our personal relationship with Jesus. And so the thinking can kind of go like this. At the end of the day, we might think to ourselves, being a Christian is about one's personal relationship with God. And so because other people also happen to have a relationship with him, we too should spend our time with them and fellowship with them so long as it seems nice and as it feels convenient or productive to us. So I'd like to suggest that we could call this view sort of the uh, service club model or the community organization model, because we we see the church this way, when we see the church this way, participation in the church can sort of be seen in the same way that we participate in something like the Kiwanis Club or the Lions Club or the Rotary Club. Because we agree, we think, with these sort of ideas and mission, uh, we may voluntarily then participate in this thing. And we may be a part of it simply because we kind of like what they're trying to do. And so we think of the church in much the same way. I basically hold all the same beliefs, and so I might as well be a part of what the church is trying to do. And so this is how we can instinctively view the church. We can see the church in in this way, basically just as a volunteer organization, uh, something that we can commit to being a part of if we want to, knowing that it'll be good, uh, a good way for us to meet people and to get connected and maybe even make some some network, some contacts, and also to be a part of something we might say bigger than ourselves. It helps us to get involved in our community. And I can do more when I serve with a church than I can do by myself. 
And so given what we've seen in Ephesians so far, however, I, I think that Ephesian, the Ephesian letter contrasts greatly with this vision of the church. It's not the biblical understanding, in other words. We are not just an organization of individuals who just so happen to believe the same things and meet up on Sunday mornings and to help out with the occasional ministry or service project. That might be what it feels like to us, but it's actually much more. That's just from our human perspective, but it's not what the church is from God's perspective. According to Ephesians, the church is the united body and bride of Christ, the masterpiece, as we've seen, of God's redemptive work in bringing dead sinners to life and joining them together in Christ, to making them one body. And now the church is a body both in heaven above, the church triumphant in glory, and the church on the earth, the church militant, as it is classically said. And so as we turn to the Word of God this morning, I'd like to share a quote before we begin from one of my favorite Reformed theologians by the name of John Williamson Nevin, who helps us to see the contrast in how we understand the church. And so in his writings on the book of Ephesians, he says this, in the book of Ephesians, The society of the faithful in Christ is referred to not as a fellowship of opinion only. That's important. Not as a fellowship of opinion only. Not as the presence merely of a common sentiment in a number of minds, but as being in some way actually at hand and open to observation in the form of an externally historical fact. We are more than than a mere collection of individuals. Though we look around this room and we see people who seem just like a bunch of normal individuals who are gathered here, we are much, much more than that. We are the masterpiece of God's creating. God is weaving us together into a grand tapestry to display his glory. And though the church is more than just the people who happen to have the same beliefs and customs, we're not less than this. The church is a faith. The Christian faith is a faith. This is what holds us together. So we share that common belief and that common sentiment, but we are now more than just those who are shared or who are gathered around a common belief. We are something that God is mysteriously doing by his power to turn us into more than just the the sum of our parts. We are more than that. We are a temple We are a body. We are a beautiful being that God is calling into creation. And so as we come with this in mind, let's pray one more time, actually, before we come to the reading of God's Word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that You have called us to be a part of this beautiful body, Your church. The church global and historic, Lord, but also the church gathered here this morning at Almond Valley to worship you. Lord, we thank you for your work in our church. We thank you what you have done among us for the past 40 plus years in ministering to us. And now, Lord, we listen to your word. Meet us in this place so that we may know you better and know ourselves and our mission better as well. Amen. So brothers and sisters, hear now the word of the living God from Ephesians 4, verses 1 through 16. Paul writes this, 
I, therefore, a prisoner for the, for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one Lord and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean? but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens, all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I want to start this morning by asking a simple question to all of us. What story are you living in? What story are you living in? In one way or another, we're all living in a story, aren't we? And I'm not just talking about the individual stories of our individual lives, but I'm talking about the bigger picture stories, the kinds that we as humans use in order to make sense of and give meaning to our otherwise small individual lives. These are the kinds of stories that we are somehow able to see and understand our lives through, the stories that we make sense of our lives in light of. We could also call these stories worldviews, but I think calling them stories, maybe with a capital S, is far more helpful. And so as human beings, we are story creatures. We live our lives in terms of stories. Stories help us to make sense and to give meaning to our lives. They help us to see, for example, where we came from, where we are now, where we're heading, and what the direction of our lives should be in the meantime as we head to the destination that we hope to someday finally reach. And it's why even the Bible itself is written in many ways and as a grand story, a grand narrative of God's interaction with people throughout history. From creation to the fall to redemption to consummation, the Bible sort of tells a one big story from beginning to end. 
And so it's one thing to know our own stories, but unless we manage to somehow make sense of our stories in light of bigger stories, our lives can begin to feel uh, a sense of meaningless, a sense of aimlessness or of apathy when we lack some sort of meta-narrative to make sense of our lives in our own individual lives. And so perhaps then I could word my question a little bit differently. What story are you living for? What story are you living for? Back in 2020, during the pandemic, one of the most expected things in my life, and there were many of them, Bailey and I got married uh, a month before we thought we were going to, but there was a lot of unexpected things that occurred, I think for almost all of us. One of those things for me was that with my added downtime, I became a fan of the English Premier League, the soccer league in England. Up to this point in my life, I'd always been a fan of American sports, baseball, basketball, and football, but I'd never really cared much for soccer. And that never really caught on for me. It just didn't do it for me for whatever reason. Until, of course, in 2020, it finally did. And I haven't looked back ever since. I've become enthralled with soccer. I've become enthralled with the different leagues, not just the English Premier League, but of all the European leagues. And it's a wonderful world that I never knew even existed. And as I did, I decided to follow a team that I now know has brought me much misery and much pain. This is a team by the name of the Tottenham Hotspurs. And they are known as a perennially underachieving major club. So I can explain that a little bit. They are known as a big club. They're a good club. They finish usually towards the top of the standings, but they basically never win. They're always in the mix, but they can never pull off the title. It's sort of uh, always the bridesmaid, never a bride sort of a scenario, if you will. And so because of this, it's quite common for other more successful teams to come sniffing in around Tottenham and trying to, to lure our team's players away to get them onto their teams. And so they will offer them large contracts. And sometimes this does, in fact, happen. Players leave. And it's sad for me because I grow, I grow an appreciation for them. But then they leave and then they're gone. But some players stick around and they will say things Basically, they say, I don't care about the money. There's actually a, a, an interesting phrase that is used often in the Premier League and probably in world soccer uh, more broadly. But the phrase is that people will say, I'm playing for the badge. I'm playing for the badge. Now, in soccer, on the jersey, there's always a logo on, on the chest here. And it will have the the badge of the team. Whatever their logo is, they call it their badge. And so by saying, I play for the badge, it's their shorthand way of saying, I see the big picture here. I'm not here for the money. I'm here for for this club, for my teammates, for my coaches. I'm here also for my fans, the world over, who love and support this team. I want to play for the badge. And so they're playing then, not for the money, but they're playing with passion, for their teammates, for the the history and the tradition of their club. Many of these clubs go back into the 19th century. And so they're playing for the bigger picture. They're captivated by their club's history and traditions. And they want to make a positive impact on the history and the well-being of this club. They don't care about the millions of dollars that are offered to them. 
All of this, then, I think, is a helpful window for us to begin to try to understand Paul's teaching here in Ephesians chapter 4, both in the whole letter broadly and also in this chapter in particular. Paul's wanting us to see ourselves, the church, with true heavenly vision, so that like the soccer players who play for the badge, we might too be totally captivated by the bigger picture here, to understand what this is really all about, to cut through all of the noise about just having a nice social time with our friends, but to see what church is really, truly all about in God's eyes. And he wants us then, Paul wants us to be taken up into this bigger picture, this bigger story of what this is all about. Because once we begin to grasp this bigger story that we're a part of as the church, everything in our lives begins to change drastically. Paul's own story is a good example of this. As a zealous Jew, his story that he was living in was telling him it is a good thing to persecute Christians, to hunt them down, and to either put them to the sword or to imprison them. And so the implications of this story on his life were enormous. But then when he was met on the Damascus Road by Jesus, his story completely changed. He was ripped out of one story and placed into a new story. And that gave his life different implications. Now, instead of hunting Christians down... He was going out to preach the gospel, to make more Christians, to make more disciples, and to do everything he could to spread the good news of Christ. And so in the same way, this is the way we have been drawn out of our old stories as sinners who were unrepentant and unregenerate. God has now ripped us out of that story and placed us into new story. And this is the story of Christ's kingdom coming on earth in all of its beautiful fullness, whereby, as Jesus says, captives are set free. Dead sinners, as Paul says here, are raised to new life. This is the story where justice flows and rolls down like the waters, where righteousness comes down like an ever-flowing stream, and where peace and joy and gladness are the inheritance of the, of the saints for all time, now and forever. This is the great story that we are called to be a part of. But if the story is about our king, and it's about his kingdom, then maybe we could ask, what's the deal with the church? What's the church's role in all of this? It's so clearly Paul's focus here in Ephesians 4, but what does the church have to do with God's bigger, redemptive story? The answer is that it has everything to do. We may think that the church is unnecessary, but the church has everything to do with God's plan. The the church is, you might say, the means through which the kingdom comes. God empowers the church, and through the church, God builds his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And this we can see according to Herman Bavink, one of the best theologians of our Reformed faith. He writes this in his book, Reformed Dogmatics. Here's how he puts it. The church, he says, accordingly is the means by which Christ distributes the benefits of the kingdom of God and lays the groundwork for its completion. Christ has been given to the head of the church precisely in order that in the end God might publicly appear as king of his people and be all things in all people. 
And so he says that important word, the church is the means by which the, the kingdom comes. And so by now, perhaps you're wondering, okay, this is interesting, Zach, but what's the point? And so again, it's that in writing Ephesians, Paul's desire, his aim is to get us to play for the badge. To see our existence as the church for what it really is and to be motivated and to be inspired by that vision, by the big picture going on here. The mysterious, beautiful, wonderful vision of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. Pushing back then the the gates of hell and retaking sinners who were captive to their sin and retaking them for God's glory. Paul wants us to grasp this vision because he knows that once we do, it will radically change our lives. It's the story into which our own individual stories are now caught up. And they participate in this grand story above us. And so, brothers and sisters, if you want to be a part of Christ's kingdom and of his mission to the world, the way to do this is not by going outside of the church. It is by being in the church, being a part of, a living member of the church of Christ. And if we're going to be a part of the church, we better do all that we can to understand how the church is designed and how the church is to function and for what end the church is to function in this world to fulfill God's purposes. And this is exactly Paul's point here then, In Ephesians 4, he wants us to see and understand how God has designed the church to function so that we can make sense of our own individual roles that we play within the larger mission of God in bringing his kingdom to earth. But before he even dives into how the church is made up of individual members with many parts and many different gifts and skill sets, He starts in verses 1 through 6, as we can see, by reminding us of our shared unity in Christ, our shared oneness. And this is sort of a summary, then, of the three chapters that precede chapter 4. Paul has made the point again and again that the church is God's one body brought together in the body of Christ, making Jews and Gentiles come together now to be raised to new life. No longer being two distinct people, but now being one in Christ. And so this word one is the sort of key word, and we see it especially in verses four through six, where it's used seven times in these three verses alone. There is one body and one spirit, Just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. So as we'll see in a moment, starting in verse 7, the apostle will transition to exploring the diversity of God's gifts to the church. But for now, he's focused on our shared identity as the one body of Christ. In many ways, what he's doing here, as I've said, is summarizing what he's already written. But the question then for us is this. Are we a congregation that truly believes in the oneness of God? Do we live this way? Are we a church that truly understands this oneness, that truly gets what this ought to look like? Do we value the oneness that we share together as a family united by God's sovereign power? Or... 
Are we merely a social club that happens to have some of the same beliefs? We happen to share some history as a community. What is the case? Who is the church and who are we at Ammon Valley? Last week we saw Jesus' words from Matthew 10 about how being a Christian may at times cost us greatly. It may at times cost us our biological family. There may be times in our lives where we are forced to choose between following the Lord, our King, or following our family, the sway and the, the decisions of our family. And we are told that, yeah, you may lose them. Jesus says you may come to a point where you have to decide to follow me. And so he says, I did not come to bring peace, but to bring a sword. But there's a flip side, of course, to this sobering reality, which we find in Matthew chapter 19, where Jesus here tells his disciples, as you can see, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In other words, the gospel, though it may cost us, or our whole family, it may cost us our connections with those we are biologically related to, it will also give us a family. A family, as we've seen now, that is not related by flesh and blood, but related actually by the blood of Christ. And it's a family that should be and is a far larger and deeper and more beneficial family than any earthly family could ever hope to offer us in this life. This family, of course, is the church. So again, does this deep sense of oneness characterize our fellowship at Ammon Valley? For some of us, I know that you have in fact experienced and known the blessing of this church and its unity. Many of you have been here from the very beginning And over the course of the past 45 years of your lives, you've come to know and appreciate and benefit from the unity of this congregation and of this church family. But as a pastor, I also know that this isn't the case for everyone. There's a disconnect for many who are either striving to find fellowship in our congregation or many who have sadly already walked away. And so I want to challenge us this morning that if you are among those who comes into church on a Sunday morning feeling very comfortable, feeling like this is where you belong. I want you first to be thankful for that. That's a great thing. That's a good thing. That is the ideal that God would have us have for us. But I want you, if you feel that way, to keep in your mind always that for so many others, this is simply not the case. It's all too easy for those of us who have been here for years or for decades to forget what it's like to be the new person walking into our church. To forget what kind of courage that takes, what kind of resilience it takes to connect with and to make connections and to uh, become a part of this family at this church. And so for many of us, we may not really understand what it's like to be here, to be with that new person or that new family in this really tight-knit church, a family-oriented church that has generations now going back to its establishment. And so if you have felt and known and experienced the love of this church or of the 
capital C, church, global, in your life, then I want you to consider it this morning, your sacred duty before God to pass that blessing along to others. To make sure that this church is a church where people genuinely know and experience the oneness of Christ. Where they experience true family. Family that's even deeper and better than biological family. For this, brothers and sisters, is what it means to be one in Christ. To be one together. But of course, Paul doesn't stop here. After hammering this oneness that we have, he does move on. And so from the vantage point of this oneness, he pivots in verses 7 and following and begins to unpack how our unity is not to be confused with uniformity. Just because we are one doesn't mean that we are all to be the same. And how great this is. There are different kinds of people in this church. We should value them, value the different giftings that we have, value the different personalities that we have in our congregation. And while this concept of diversity within unity is a classic Pauline uh, teaching, which we see, for example, in Romans chapter 12 or in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, as he talks about the different spiritual gifts that he gives to different members of the body of Christ. Here in Ephesians 4, it's less about these kinds of spiritual gifts and more about the gifts of spiritual office with which God blesses his church for her operation, for her health, and for her well-being. And so in order to, to do this, we can see in verse, verses 8 through 10 how Paul makes a very thought-provoking and even somewhat strange argument about the giving of these gifts. And so he quotes from Psalm 68 uh, to say that Christ, who is ascending on high, who is leading a host of captives and giving gifts to men. And then he explains that by having ascended to give gifts, It must also mean, he says, that at some point he descended into the lower regions, the earth, and that his having ascended must mean that he now reigns far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. This is mysterious language. It may be a little complex. It's heady stuff. So what's Paul getting at here? What is he saying in these sort of parenthetical statements in these verses? It's that just as ancient kings would distribute gifts and the spoils of war that they had won from war. They would give those gifts upon returning. They would distribute those gifts to their people. And they would give them to their subjects. All the plunder of their enemies. And so too, Christ, our victorious King, by His incarnation, His coming to the lower regions, the earth, And by his atonement, he has defeated now and plundered his enemies, and he has taken spoils of war up with him as he has now ascended above all heavenly powers. And now from his throne, Christ gives gifts to his church. He distributes these spoils to his church. And so what are these gifts? Are they gold? Are they property? Are they possessions? No, these gifts, as we see in verse 11, are human beings that he has graciously rescued and rehabilitated and restored. These are human beings he has taken back from the evil one, and now he is giving them as gifts to his people. And so we read there in verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. 
Now, we could spend a lot of time together this morning trying to dig into each of the meanings of these different offices that are listed here, but the point I want us to consider is a broader point in general, and that's simply that Christ's church does indeed have a structure, has a a leadership structure, it has a design and a way for it to operate, Our world, by contrast, would have us flatten all things. There can be no experts. Question all authorities. Don't let anyone lord their authority over you. I can still remember the words of my diversity 180 course in college where I was told by my professor, do not call your doctor doctor. Insist that you call them by their first name only. If they request you to still call them doctor, leave. That was the advice. God's church does not work like that. God's church does, in fact, have leaders. Leaders who serve, leaders who give their lives, leaders, nonetheless, who we are to respect and to listen to and to heed their admonition as we've now heard in our charge to you, the congregation. And so as part of his gifts to us, he has chosen to give us this. And it's fitting, then, that we've fallen on this text this is no design of my own. We've fallen on this text on the day of the installation of our elders. And so at the very least this morning, we should leave here with a feeling of gratitude and thankfulness in our hearts for the leaders that God has given to us. We should praise the Lord that even now, in 2023, He is still graciously giving leaders to the church. He is still giving gifts from His heavenly throne room. And though it's admittedly a little weird and kind of uncomfortable for me to say, Pastor Mark and I, along with the elders and deacons, then are gifts to you, this church. This is not how I think of myself as God's gift to all of you in that way, in the conceited way. But I am a gift to you, I hope. And I I wish to be, I seek to be. To see to it that we are a body that are led and instructed and cared for and discipled in the way of Christ. And it would be the understatement of the century to not caveat all of this by saying, often leaders fail to live up to this high calling. We don't always live up to it. We don't always succeed. But nevertheless, before God, it is our duty to strive as best as we are able, by the power of His Spirit, to fulfill these callings on your behalf, to work by the Spirit to serve you. And so in the final verses of the passage, Paul tells us why it's our duty. He gives us our motivation and our calling and says, this is your end. All you who work for the church, who are elders and officers in the church, this is your duty. And so in verse 12, he tells us, that they are called to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, for building up the body of Christ, or building up, excuse me, yes, the body of Christ. Interestingly, this isn't the only way to translate the Greek here. It could be translated quite a bit differently, and you can see this on the screen behind me. So our ESV simply says, as we've just read, to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ. Now, the Greek could just as easily be read and translated as the way of the King James Version, which says these three things. Leaders are given for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, and for the edifying of the body of Christ. 
I think theologically, both of these are true. Both of these are good. And I only point them out because I think it's something we should consider and think about here. Sometimes we we do hear it said, and I'm sure any teachers in our congregation have heard this before, those who can't teach. Those who can't teach. And so sometimes we can, I think, adopt this mindset and think to ourselves, well, it's the pastors and the leaders of the church who are preparing us for the real ministry, and they're the ones who are having it pretty easy. And so if that's your mindset, it may be helpful to keep in mind that Paul is very well, he very well may be saying that it's the leaders who are called for the work of ministry, not merely to equip the congregation for the work of ministry, but that they are doing the work of ministry themselves. Now, conversely, it could be that the ESV has it right. There is definitely a sense in which it is the job of the officers of the church to teach the congregation, to prepare the congregation for serving in the world, for the ministry that we participate in in the world, whether that's in our homes or our workplaces or in our other places of influence. And so therefore, we, could have a, we should have a balanced approach here. Uh, for my money, I think that the King James Version is probably more accurate given the whole context of the passage. But whatever the case, in verses 13 through 16, the apostle finally tells us to what end the officers and the church are to serve and how they're called to do their work. And it says that they are called to do this until we, that is the saints, the church, until we all attain the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, it makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. I think when we boil all of this down, which is a beautiful statement about how the church is to function at its best, when we boil it all down, we might say that God gives leaders to the church so that by his power, we, the whole church, all of us, might be made strong and mature, equipped and steadfast, ready to stand strong against falsehoods and false teaching, which have always, from the time of the apostles down to the very present, been a constant danger and threat in the life of the church. We are to have body integrity, strength together, maturity together as we grow and live on mission in the Lord's calling for our lives. And so as we bring things to a close this morning, and considering all that we've read here in chapter 4, as well as in the installation of our elders and deacons now, I figured it would be fitting to conclude our time by turning to Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, we see Paul's address, his final address to the Ephesian elders. He gathers them on his way back to Jerusalem. He pauses his journey. He gathers the Ephesian elders who make a a journey to come down to the coast to visit him. And they have a very emotional exchange. Uh, Paul spent one of the longest times of his whole mission work in the city of Ephesus. Uh, It's 
pretty clear that his time in Ephesus was probably longer than any time in any of the other cities in which he had stopped. And so he would have known these leaders well and personally. And so knowing that this was likely going to be his last time seeing them, he says through weeping and tears in verse 28 and following, he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained in his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert. And so I say to my fellow shepherds of this flock, Heed the words of your charge this morning to hold firmly to the trustworthy message as it has been taught so that you can encourage others by sound doctrine and refute those who oppose it. Teach this church the truth of God's word, elders. Disciple them to know and to love and to serve the Lord. And for the rest of us this morning, my charge to all of us is this. Play for the badge. Remember the story of what this is really all about. The kingdom of God coming on earth as it is in heaven. The church is God's chosen means through which he blesses the whole world. Play a part. Play your part in this vision. Amen? Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for calling us to your Son. That by nothing of our own, not by our riches or our obedience or goodness, Lord, have you called us to Christ. But in your sovereign grace, you have taken us from our former stories of being given over to our sin to now being a part of your story in this making of all things new in our world. Lord, we thank you for your church. We thank you for our existence together as a body of brothers and sisters, mothers and fathers who know each other and are now united through Christ. Lord, may we be more and more a church that loves to welcome outsiders, that loves to extend the same grace that we've received from Christ to others who do not yet know it, that they may have the joy of salvation full in their own hearts. Lord, we pray in Christ's holy name and for his sake. Amen. And now, brothers and sisters, I will ask you to stand to sing our song of response. I think a fitting song for this text. I love your church, O Lord. This is a song where we can celebrate together our love for this congregation and for God's global church throughout time and history and space and what he has done in making a body to be one to worship him. So let's sing. Your 
church, O Lord, her sins before you stand, dear as the apple of your eye, and graven on your hand. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet joy. 